This is the Sport Lifestyle Network podcast, where relationships matter. Conversations between thought leaders from sports, fitness, and tech. The SLN podcast starts now. Hey, it's Mike Gugat from the Sport Lifestyle Network. In this episode of the SLN podcast, I catch up with my old friend, Andy Levinson. As you will hear, we work together at Mizuno. Today, Andy wears several hats at the PGA Tour. His formal title is SVP of Tournament Administration, but he also serves as the Executive Director of USA Golf. We will talk about the Olympics. He oversees policy related to health, sports betting, and much more, so we will certainly get into COVID. Like me, he's a proud father and his kids play golf. Enjoy. All right, Andy Levinson, it's been 19 years since you and I ran a marathon together, which is hard to believe, but do you remember what our time was? I believe the exact time was 3.44.04. Is that right? Oh, man. I, I I kept rounding it down the further, you know, as I went to work at these places with really fast runners. No, I'm kidding. But yeah, no, that's that's it. That, that picture of us crossing the line at about the same time uh, is uh, sat on a desk pretty much everywhere I've gone. You helped me complete my first marathon. Not sure if I would have made it across that line without you. So well, that was You're being awfully kind because if you recall, we were both working for Mizuno at the time. Mizuno was the sponsor of the Austin Marathon. And uh, I was deep into my cup about two days before the marathon and, and we happened to, you know, catch up and I was saying encouraging things to you in hopes that you would help drag me across the line. And uh, that's how it worked out. Well, as I recall, we talked the entire race and there were people dropping like flies towards the end and we were still talking and, and uh, it, it, even, it, you know. I think we even had a little beer right before we crossed the finish line. There was somebody handing beers out. It was it was a really special experience for me, and uh, it was the first of three that I've done in my life. But um, but definitely the most fun I had doing that. Well, it was the most fun for me as, as others. I did not have a companion to get me across the line. And, uh, you know, certainly the wheels came off much earlier. So it was nice to, uh, you know, remember that experience. And as two people that like to talk, but one of us that was doing it professionally at the time, uh, you were uh, working at Mizuno and leading communications. Tell me a little bit about that experience and how that kind of led you to the, uh, to the PGA. Well, uh, prior to Mizuno, actually, uh, I had worked for a PR agency called Conan Wolf that was based in Atlanta and did a lot of work in consumer goods, uh, did some work for Coca-Cola and for Marriott. Um, and we had a couple of sports clients, the PGA of America, which is the, the membership organization of teaching professionals. And, uh, and then the Major League Baseball All-Star Game was being held in Atlanta, and uh, they hired us to do some work there. And it was through that experience with MLB that I was, I was first connected um, uh, with Mizuno and Lisa Mark, who ultimately ended up hiring me to come on and, and do communications for uh, Mizuno USA, so the, the, the U.S., sports divisions of Mizuno, which is a very large global sporting goods company. But really, my, my role is focused on the, the product lines in the U.S., which were um, baseball, golf, volleyball, and, of course, running. And um, 
you know, my, my, my experience, whether it was personal or through work, I, I had a fair amount of experience with uh, golf and knew quite a bit about baseball. Volleyball was a smaller piece of the U.S. business, but running was really the, the, the emerging piece of Mizuno's business. And aside from being like a casual, you know, three mile uh, here or there type of runner, I didn't know anything about that space. Um, and, and really, if I was going to be able to effectively communicate it, I needed to learn, you know, I needed to learn to talk the talk and walk the walk, so to speak. So, so I started training and, uh, you know, guys like Chris Brewer, who's now at Adidas and, um, you know, they would take me out at lunch and, and, and show me the ropes. Um, and so eventually I became, you know, competent enough to, to be able to say I do it and I can talk about the product at the same time. So I had, I had, I had nearly four great years at, um, at Mizuno and um, really enjoyed getting into the sporting goods side of the business, um, getting to know the, the different processes uh, for manufacturing product and marketing product and selling product and, and all of that, which I had very, you know, very little exposure to prior to that. So that was a really great experience for me. Um, there was, there was, you know, no work reason that I left Mizuno. It actually had to do with my wife going to graduate school, um, something that she had always really wanted to do. She was in the investment banking world and and went to get her MBA. And I, I said, all right, let's go. So we moved to Virginia for a little bit, um, spent about a year working for a startup tech company that I didn't even understand the, the technology. And um you know, quickly realized that I wanted to get back into the sporting goods industry. Um, and so I was out for about a, out of that industry for about a year uh, out of the sports industry and ultimately uh, learned of an opportunity at the PGA Tour um, in uh, 2004 and uh, was hired sort of in the latter part of 2004. And I've been here ever since. So I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, step back to Chris Brewer. And if Chris Brewer was your running partner, you know, you expanded your VO2 max very quickly because you were probably laughing much of the time in which you were running. And uh, Chris, actually, uh, we reconnected at Adidas uh, as I was leading sales for running and he was leading product marketing. And uh, he's one of the good guys. He really is. And, And he was very, you know, he was very much a teacher. As, as I recall, you know, focusing on on my technique and, you know, form, which, you know, stuff I had never thought about before. I thought I used to think if you're just out there and you're moving your feet kind of fast and, you know, getting a little cardio work in, then that's running. But, the, the you know, he was very much focused on technique and uh, it was really interesting uh, to learn from him like that. And there were other guys, too, from that from that running group that, that we all ran together and they slowed down so that I could keep up. Well, it was a very interesting experience because, you know, I think what people uh, don't realize about Mizuno is as big as they are globally. And for as long as they were in business, they were very methodical about how the businesses were to be planned and how those businesses, you know, the expectations, you know, on growth. And, uh, and so to be able to communicate across all those categories wasn't always easy. 
No, it wasn't. Uh, it's it, it's a, a real cultural thing, I, I think, at the time, and I'm not sure how it is today. I'm a bit removed from that. But at the time, there wasn't a lot invested into advertising, right? It, it, you really had to let the product speak for itself. So PR and free media was really a heavy focus of what we did because we didn't throw a lot of money at big product launches and tons of television advertising and so so on and so forth. So we had to find other ways. And I think what you guys were doing at the time in the running division, really building a like almost a cult-like grassroots following and, and having a focus on um, specialty stores as opposed to going right into the you know the big box stuff, that that really established the brand as an elite brand in the running market, and and that really un- ended up taking off, and still you know does quite well today. So it was an interesting strategy. I'm not sure it would work. Um, it would work in some you know in in, in other in other sporting good areas, but but for running where people are so passionate about technology and product and, and innovation and things like that. It was a really an effective strategy. Um, and it worked to some degree in golf, although golf really became, um, you know, consumed by these sort of bigger manufacturers who were doing a lot of splashy product launches and, you know, launching multiple products a year and things like that. So, um, yeah, just a just a different way of doing things. Well, it's interesting because you know the the PR piece of earned media, and somebody had me realize like if you're able to disrupt, then you need to credential that disruption with the right partners, and you can't just buy that media to do that sort of credentialing. And I think back to you know Mizuno had always kind of had that in golf. They were known for their blades. They were known for, you know, that, uh, you know, game improvement was really not their, you know, wheelhouse, although they expanded into it, but it was really like the best players use Mizuno irons. Yeah, that's right. And they used to, you know, back in the day, Mizuno used to point to the, the number of players using Mizuno clubs week in and week out. Now, as, as the, the, their competitors got bigger and had more marketing dollars to spend. They were really putting people in their product, you know, and paying them to do that. And let's face it. I mean, these golfers are so good. They could really play with anything (laughs) and still be very, very good at it. Um, And a lot of companies started moving into, you know, an elite level product, you know, creating a blade, not and for a mass manufacturer, but really just to just to get these these elite players into it, um, and then start using their names and likeness to promote their entire product line. Um, and Mizuno didn't do a whole heck of a lot of that. They did some athlete sponsorship, uh, but they didn't they didn't really you know flood the market like like some of the other bigger companies did. And in some uh, cases, there was that authenticity of those athletes that were loyal to the brand because of its quality and not necessarily like they, they looked for endorsements elsewhere as opposed to, you know, the equipment served them in a different way. Right. Well, um, you know, I, I, 
I spent I spent you know nearly four years at Mizuno and and certainly drank the Kool Aid a little bit so to speak and I still play their their clubs. So they're still they're still in your bag. That was going to be one of my I questions. Found, I have not found an iron that feels anywhere like a Mizuno iron does. But um, but you know there, certainly there are a lot of there are a lot of manufacturers who've caught up you know with some of the technology and manufacturing processes, but. Mizuno was very much an innovative company, you know, back in that day. Well, and I think the, you know, it's funny that you say it was four years and in some cases it felt like a longer period of time because when you're green and coming up in the industry and you're learning so much, but I think to have learned from such a sage-like brand, you know, that Mm -hmm. had invested so many years to get products to where they were. One of the things I had either read or somebody had told me was the profitability in golf you know, was really in the putters and the drivers because, you know, a a player would get fit for irons and that was an investment that they were going to, you know, maintain or, you know, depreciate over time, but they might actually pick up a putter or a driver, you know, each season. Yeah. You know, you bring up club fitting. I mean, that was, that was something that Mizuno was on the forefront of, um, you know, customizing clubs to the individual player. Now you go into any golf store around the country and they've got a club fitting, you know, system to fit you into any product that they have on the rack and all the manufacturers are doing it. But, but Mizuno is really one of the first to be out there, you know, doing custom club fitting. I was going to save this embarrassing story for later, but, uh, you know, as, as I think after you had left Mizuno, I'd finally gotten talked into playing golf. So in my late twenties, I took it up and then I kind of became obsessed in my early thirties and I get out to Adidas and, uh, they had this, you know, these, they would bring the various business leaders together from the different brands the Adidas group owned. And so I was in a, a meeting with the CFO at TaylorMade. And we were trying to do something similarly and TaylorMade had gotten themselves in trouble with the Germans and they kind of wanted to use me as cover because I was working for Adidas. So they invited me down to Carlsbad. And when I arrived, um, they said, well, our meetings aren't going to you know, be until the afternoon. You got to go over to the kingdom. And I'm like, what's the kingdom? What's this you know, place? And they're just walk across it. You'll recognize it. So these huge walls, wooden fences. I don't know if you've been there before. Yes, um, I have. So door opens up, the most attractive woman in the world walks out, greets me, brings me inside. My name's on a marquee and I'm already starting to feel the yips coming on. And she takes me over to the locker room and there's clothes laid out on the the bench. And I'm looking up and there's Sergio, there's Dustin, there's all this. And all of a sudden this guy walks in and I'm like, he looks familiar. And it's Steve Pate. He's like, oh, you're here to hit balls today. And I'm like, yeah. And, and I, you know, of course at this point I'm about to lose it. You know, this is too much. And so I walk out and they're like, well, we've arranged a lesson before you get going. And this is 2011. And so Jim Flick comes out and gives me a lesson. Oh my gosh. It's the most amazing experience. And I think the pressure, I managed to hit the balls. And he said to me, he says, how often do you play? And I said, well, it's been six months. He says, if you'll just hit a bucket of balls and play one round a week, you'll fall in love with the game. And to this day, I still only play three rounds a year with the same clubs they fit me in. But but that, 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 that was my greatest, uh, you know, and then we'll get into the PGA here in a second, but if you look back, cause I'm sure there's so many, what's your greatest yeah. golf experience? Oh gosh. I mean, there's, there, there, there are a lot of things. Um, personally, um, you know, my favorite golf experiences were rounds I played with my dad, um, rounds that I've played with my father-in-law at some really spectacular places like Pebble beach and St. Andrews. Um, 
a 40th birthday trip that I took with a bunch of buddies to Kiowa uh, is one that sticks out. And then, you know, professionally, um, you know, the Players' Championship every year, which is in our hometown, is always a special experience. But taking my kids to that and and seeing them enjoy it, that's that's really been a, a great thing. Um, going to the Olympic Games and, and bringing golf back to the Olympic Games um, and being there to see the first, you know, medalists in golf in over a hundred years was really a spectacular, you know, opportunity for me and and highlight. But the biggest golf moment in my life actually happened fairly recently. Um, It was uh, during COVID, you know, uh, times, which we're still in, but, but a little bit more intense back then. It was in December of 2020, and I took my then nine-year-old son out to play. He's played for a few years um, and plays in some PGA Junior League events and and things like that, but always nine holes. He's never had the kind of stamina to play 18 holes. So so on this particular day, we're playing his very first 18-hole round of golf, and uh, we're playing at a course here in Florida called the Ponte Vedra Inn and Club at the Ocean Course uh, on a windy day. And my nine-year-old son hit a hole-in-one on the 16th hole. Uh, it was a legit hole-in-one. And uh, we went nuts. The guys in front of us went nuts. The group behind us, which was you know filled with some buddies, they went, they went crazy. That was probably the best moment I've ever had on a golf course. That's amazing. And I'm so glad you told that because the last time we caught up, you had shared that story with me. Yeah. And uh, it's it's just incredible. I, I have a three and a half year old and I, I hope he really takes the game up much earlier <clears throat> than I did. Uh, you know, right now he, you know, kind of swings the club like a ninja and we just try to get out of the way. But, uh, you know, it's- <laughs> well, I have no, you know, you know, as as most parents do, I, I don't want my my I don't need my kid to be an elite level player. I just want them to like it so that we can spend a lot of time together. Like, like I did with my dad and I I do with my father-in-law today. So, well, that importance of that connection. My father was not a golfer. He played a lot of different sports and he played college tennis. And interestingly enough, a classmate of his at Chico state, a little school up in Northern California was Phil Mickelson senior. And he hadn't seen him in 50 plus years. And I get a phone call. I'm working for Adidas at the time. And he says, you know, Mike, will you come meet me for my 50th, you know, college reunion? I said, why is mom not going? Well, she, and he, you know, well, of course your mother wants a break from me. So, but if, if you come, then I don't have to room with Phil Mickelson senior. And I'm like, what do you, what's the big deal? And he's just like, well, there's just a little added pressure, you know, he's kind of led a different life and everything like that. So anyway, I go and we spend the entire weekend and these old guys are sharing stories and his father, much to my surprise, is the guy actually in the arthritis commercial, you know, nice Mm -hmm. as can be. And so I save up my golf question for the very end. And I said, you know, I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but what, uh, you know, what is the thing you imparted? you know, to Phil that, that, you know, has led him to this level of success. And he says, well, I hope his sister would say the same thing, but the golf would always be fun. And he said, I used to make up stories. We never played a consistent nine or 18 holes when they were kids. I would wait until the both of them were having the most fun and that I'd make up an excuse to leave. Like your mother needs us to pick something up at the store or do this other thing. And it, it just dawned on me and you know, Phil is fiercely competitive, 
But at the same time, even when he's having his worst round, he's offering fist bumps to other players that are mm-hmm. doing good things. And there's just something about that that just seemed very genuine and sincere. Yeah, it, it, is, uh, it is a game that can bring a lot of joy uh, to a lot of people in a lot of different ways. It can bring a lot of angst too. <laughs> but, I've got, but, I've got, I've got a bent pitching wedge over here, which I can't remember if, you know, you know, how I bent it, but I'm sure there was a you know fit of anger when it happened. We've all been there, but, um, I would say that's, that's the thing I, I work on my, the most these days, uh, when I do play is just, is just, uh, staying level headed. So you referenced the Olympics and uh, the last time we were actually together in person was actually in Colorado. We bumped into each other at the Broadmoor as uh, the Olympic organizing committee was, was having a group there. And clearly you wear many different hats at the, the PGA tour. I mean, today you're the SVP of tournament administration, but you're also the executive director of USA golf. Can you talk a little bit about the various hats that uh, you've worn and that you now wear uh, there at the PGA tour? Yeah, well, you know, interestingly, I mentioned, you know, that first job that I got back in 2004 at the PGA Tour, that was that was intended to be brand marketing, which was in my wheelhouse of kind of a Mizuno and things like that. But but about a month after I started at, at the PGA Tour, um, the, the man that hired me, John Padani, uh, called me into his office and said, I'm being moved over to business to head up our business development team, which was sponsorship sales. And I'm bringing you with me. So a month into my career, I became a, a sponsorship sales guy. And, and I, I worked in our sponsorship and sort of corporate marketing areas um, for about five years. And that was great. Loved it. Um, and then one day our, our legal counsel came into my office and said, we have to start an anti-doping program and we'd like you to, to run that. And I thought, well, that's crazy. Why would you ask me to do that? I don't know anything about that at all. Uh, but as it turns you, out, you, you project a straight laced, you know, like there, there nobody's going to question whether you inhaled or not back in the day. I think it's, it's really like nobody knows anything about anti-doping until you're actually forced to learn something about anti-doping. Um, so, so I thought I saw it as an opportunity to do something different, completely different side of the business um, you know, engage with players a little bit more than I was really focused on sponsors in the past. And even though it's something that players don't really like, um, it still is something different. So I did that, uh, actually was in the legal department for about a year and a half or so, and then just continued to expand my, my role into really all of the rules and regulations associated with being a member because uh, we're a membership organization of the PGA Tour or our other five professional tours around the world. And so really my responsibilities are very focused on um, policies, regulations, um, uh, governance, that type of thing uh, across all of our tours. Um, I spent uh, prior to the COVID years uh about two and a half to three years focusing very much on the uh, legalization of sports betting that's happening across our country right now and making sure that um, that the new laws that are being created state by state 
are, are protecting the integrity of the sports themselves and not just really focused on generating revenue for sports betting operators and things like that. So, so I, d- I did a lot of lobbying, uh, you know, for a couple of years going to state capitals and, you know, had to dust off my knowledge of state capitals quite a bit for that, for that assignment. But once my kids, uh, you know, really start learning those in school, I'm going to be ready. <laughs> um, and, and then and then when COVID came along, you know, one of the areas that I spend a great deal of time on and have, and have overseen at the PGA Tour for a while is our, our health and fitness program. And so I've worked with our medical advisors and uh, for quite some time. And so uh, when the Players' Championship was stopped in mid-competition um, in, uh, you know, that was that was uh, a real shock to us all. Um but I immediately started focusing on, on the health side of things and, and figuring out how can we come back, what type of program, what type of measures do we need to be taking to create a healthy and safe environment for not just our players, but the caddies and the staff and, you know, we're a traveling circus from week to week. So that, that adds another layer uh, of, of complex, complexity. But ultimately, we were able to come back. Um, we were one of the first sports that were, that came back, and uh, I've overseen our health and safety program now since since that day in March when we shut down, and um, and that's been that's been uh, incredibly challenging for all of us. Well, there was um, a pretty interesting story that happened that kind of you know brought your business development background together with COVID when Nick Watley's Whoop, yeah. Um, can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, you know, uh, as we looked at um, creating the health and safety program and, and what were all of the different steps we were going to be taking uh, to monitor each individual's health um, and and make sure that we didn't have any cases arising, or if we did, we were going to be able to isolate them, we did start looking at wearable technology. Um we we didn't settle on one before we before we resumed competition, but a number of our players were already using uh, wearable devices, and Whoop was one that had gained quite a bit of popularity amongst our players, and they were using it to monitor, um, you know, their their various sleep levels and energy recovery levels and things like that, more for training purposes than you know anything actually during competition. Um, and in that in that particular case, it was very early on in our return. Uh, you know, one of our players did notice a little bit of spike in his in his respiratory rate, which was traditionally very flat, um, and and that indicator led him to sort of raise his hand and say, "Hey, I'm a little concerned here." And so we we had already tested him earlier in the week, and he was negative. But but upon that information we tested him again and uh and sure enough he was positive so we engaged uh with whoop the company that uh, had made the device that he was wearing learned a lot more about their product and ultimately gave um gave players on uh, three of our tours uh players and caddies uh the wearable device the whoop device and uh you know gave them access to the platform 
that Whoop has, and uh, ultimately, it's it's actually flourished into into an official partnership that we have with Whoop. But originally, it was really just something that we were we were trying to create as many layers of screening as we could, and and this proved to be an effective one. You referenced getting the players back and getting the game, you know, uh, back going safely. Uh, what responsibility does the tour have over the fans? Well, you know, we we conduct these events week in and week out. And for a long time, we played events without fans, um, you know, with with proper camera angles and things like that. You can you can kind of watch golf on TV and it won't seem that different again with with sort of closer up shots uh, and, and camera angles and so forth than as a, than it would say watching a football game with nobody in the stands. Um, but, but at the same time, the environment is very, very different. The intensity on the ground for the players, it's just a different environment and, and one that our players really missed. They missed having the fans out there. So, you know, we had to slowly reintroduce fans in a way that not only we, but our medical advisors and local health officials all felt comfortable with. Now, as we've learned more about the virus and transmission, we know that outdoor transmission is much, much less likely than indoor transmission. So our sport had a lot of built-in benefits already. We play across 200 acres. Um, There's plenty of room to space out. Uh, You're playing out, you're outdoors all the time. Uh, And so we did have some built-in advantages to some of the other professional sports that play indoors, in arenas, uh, in fixed seating and so forth. So, uh, you know, we've been able to create an environment that we feel is is safe for our fans. Um, You know, we do some screening and and so forth, but um, but fortunately, uh, you know, we haven't had any issues with our spectators um, uh, to date. And, um, you know, we're really excited to start getting back to sort of those, those normal big PGA Tour crowds. One of my best buddies uh, is a scratch golfer, and he invited me to play several times because he was guaranteed that we'd be socially distanced just purely on skill level. But uh, uh, last little bit, and we'll wrap up here. Uh, as the executive director of USA Golf, I think a lot of people don't know or appreciate that it's different than a lot of the other NGBs and and how they do Mm -hmm. what they do. Could you speak a little bit about that and then uh, briefly talk about how the team is put together, the process? There's not a traditional Olympic trials, if you will. Well, ironically, we happen to be speaking on the day where I just uh, a couple of hours ago formally submitted uh, the U.S. golf team uh, to the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee for Tokyo. Um, and any surprises but, there? We got, you know, anything? No surprises, no surprises, some great stories uh, that I'll get into. But but USA Golf is is very much uh, focused on on just Olympic competition. So when, when golf was uh, added back to the Olympic program back in 2008, nine timeframe, um, you know, there were already a lot of big golf organizations in the United States. Yeah, the PGA Tour and the LPGA, which are the, you know, the organizations of professional golfers, the PGA of America, which is the membership organization of teaching professionals, and then the United States Golf Association, which is the rules making body 
that runs grassroots competitions and, um, uh, you know, has our national championships, the, the U.S. Open and the Women's U.S. Open and so on and so forth. Um, we didn't really feel like we needed to reinvent the wheel, but there is a, a law that governs exactly how an Olympic national governing body needs to be structured. And so we all got together back in 2011 and decided we would create a separate entity that would really just be focused on Olympic and Olympic-related competitions. So we created USA Golf. I've served as executive director of USA Golf uh, since 2011. And for the most part, it's it's just me most of the time, uh, ex- with the exception of, you know, if I need legal services or financial services or insurance services, then I'll, I'll tap into one of those organizations to, to assist. And then when we have competitions, which we've only, we haven't had many, but we participated in the 2015 Pan Am Games um, with amateurs, uh, the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio with pros and took home silver, uh, I'm sorry, the, the bronze medal in the men's competition by Matt Kuchar. And, um, and then we did the Youth Olympic Games uh, in Buenos Aires in um, 2018, the Pan Am Games uh, in Lima, Peru in 2019, and now we're headed to Tokyo uh, in just a few weeks. Um, and, you know, I've, as, I've, as I've said to, to many players over the years, and these are, you know, these are people who have played at the game at the highest level um, for a long time and traveled the world and are celebrities, there's no experience like the Olympic Games. There's just not. It's very different from a normal golf competition or, or any other type of competition. Um, when you're representing your country, when you're playing for uh, a spot on that podium, um, you know you feel the, the support of, 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 of the, the entire country behind you. And the country really comes together and the world really comes together. But at the same time, you're standing there alongside your fellow athletes from all of these other sports. And... Um, you know, I think I think in that environment, you know, all of the participants from golf really felt like, you know, they're part of the athletic community, standing side by side with Michael Phelps or, you know, with uh, Serena Williams or Simone Biles. You know, it's just to bring that all of those athletes together. It's just very, very different. And so, you know, I've never compared it to another event, you know, even some of our team events where, you know, people play on the U S team. It's just, it's just a very different and very special experience. And one that, you know, they'll all be able to say they're Olympians for life. And so, you know, I'm really proud to be a part of that, uh, in some small way. And even though Tokyo is going to be very, very different and we're not going to have the ability to move around quite as much as a normal Olympic Games, there'll be a lot of restrictions still related to COVID um, in terms of our movements. You know, I still think it's going to be an experience for these four men and four women that are representing the United States that they will remember forever. So, um, yeah, we're excited. I'm heading out there in just uh, four weeks time. Actually, four weeks from today, I'll be heading out there, and and hopefully we'll we'll bring home some hardware. 
We hope so too. And uh, uh, we'll get you uh, going on, on this last one. Uh, how much golf are you actually watching either in person or on television these days? I like to watch golf on television. I, I, I enjoy it quite a bit, even though, you know, it is my job and, and um, you know, there are, there are aspects of what I'm looking at that probably the fans aren't looking at when they watch it. I still thoroughly enjoy it. I mean, we're coming off a Sunday uh, where at the, at the Travelers Championship in, in Connecticut, we had an eight-hole playoff. Um, and, you know, the network television stayed on for two extra hours covering this playoff, which is just extraordinary. But the the uh, level of competition was so great and the intensity of it all was was so fascinating that um, that I'm sure it captivated a lot of people. And so I still really enjoy that. I enjoy going out and watching my, you know, my my kids play. Um, you know, that's a lot of fun for me, too. I don't play as much as I'd like to, but maybe after the Olympics, I'll find some time to get back into it a bit. Well, maybe one of these days, I'm not going to promise a marathon, but, uh, you know, maybe there's a short run and a round of golf in the future that, uh, you know, to be able to share some more stories. But uh, I wish you safe travels. I'm uh, very grateful for you taking the time to uh, share all this with us and uh, go USA. All right, Googs. It's always good to see you. Thanks a lot, buddy. Thanks, man. Thank you to our guests and sponsors. Without them, there would be no Sport Lifestyle Network. If you're listening via Apple Podcast or Spotify, be sure to rate us and subscribe. For more podcasts and to sign up for the newsletter, go to sportlifestylenetwork.com. Again, sportlifestylenetwork.com. Until next time, play hard or at least look good doing it. <laughs>